Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. Ahoy! My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today, I'm very excited to have her, is Medea, I call her Dea, Medea Ocher, who is the managing editor of LARB, the LA Review of Books. Hi, Dea. Hi, Lori. It's good to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Did you know that today is an all-Jewish woman day? I did. I thought that was why I was invited. It is. I feel very comfortable being here on all-woman Jewish day. It's like the Orthodox temple where the women are kind of segregated. I'm wearing a little handkerchief on my head. Uh, Yeah, you've got a babushka. I I do. (laughs) And uh, joining us will be Jessica Koslow, who is the proprietor of Squirrel, a wonderful restaurant. It's at the corner of Virgil and Melrose in Silver Lake. And Jessica Koslow has a new cookbook out called Everything I Want to Eat, subtitle Squirrel, No You, Squirrel and the New California Cooking. We are in the studio with Jessica Koslow, who is a local celebrity who's become a national celebrity. I feel very proprietary about you, Jessica, because I feel that I discovered you. You might have. I was riding down Melrose one day, and I saw a sign that said, Burnt Brioche, and I almost had a car accident because I had just been having a conversation with my friend Michelle Hunovan, who's a writer, and we were going to write the Almost Burnt Cookbook because we thought that that was just the thing, and these things are in the air. Anyway, that is Jessica's restaurant, Squirrel, spelled without a U. Which Thanks for still having me. <laughs> <laughs> we are delighted to have you. We also have Medea Ocher here, who is the managing editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books, which I understand it's a fine publication. Thank you. It is a fine publication. And I also feel proprietary over Squirrel. So it's good that actually one of us does own it because there would be a battle. (laughs) But I discovered Squirrel a while ago, but when I broke up with an ex-boyfriend and moved out and I was looking for a new place, I decided that I really wanted a new place right by Squirrel because it felt like a really comforting, sort of familiar spot that I really wanted to be able to walk to in the morning. And I found an apartment by Squirrel. And then every time I went, I would bump into a friend that I hadn't seen in years or a person from college that I knew sometimes all at the same sort of visit. So it is also very dear to my heart. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of, I don't want to say there's a lot of stories like that and, and not make you feel special. <laughs> special. But this is about how special we are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did we not tell yeah. you that? <laughs> but there is a sense of community in the restaurant itself. And whether you see a lot of people there or you have this experience of wanting to be near there or having burnt brioche toast and being like, oh, that book I was supposed to write. Or a friend of mine who had come to Squirrel to gorge on toast in order to drown the sorrows of breakups. There's all sorts of stories that are there, people who find love and leave love, and it makes it a special place. Well, it's kind of the new comfort food, and it's like we didn't know or expect it, but as soon as we saw it, we realized that that's what it was. The first time I ate there with my stepdaughter, Jessie, one of us had the sorrel pesto rice bowl, which has brown rice, sorrel pesto, poached egg, preserved Meyer lemon, and feta. 
And I think you can just imagine in your head how those flavors combined, they're just amazing, salty and sweet and crunchy and just amazing. And the other one was the crispy rice salad, which has fried brown rice, lemongrass, mint, cucumber, and ginger. And it's my did, favorite. Mm. I think of those as your two signature dishes. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think those two, the crispy rice salad, the sorrel pesto, and the burnt ricotta toast, whether or not you want to burn it, are three of the dishes that if we took off the menu, we would have a riot in clothes. Did you, you know? ever try to do that? No, I think in the beginning, we didn't have the space or capacity to make enough brown rice for crispy salad. So... It would be until we ran out every day and people were rioting. It was not a good scene. So we had to figure out how to make enough to get us through the days. How did you do it? Just as any business does, we just grow and evolve and we learn how to be more efficient. And one of those things was we listen to what the customer is asking for and we find a way to make it work on our end. Jessica has a new cookbook out. I think it wins the award for the most direct cookbook title. I remember I was talking to a chef about doing a cookbook. I was looking at cookbook titles and there was all like yummy, delicious, (laughs) you know, moist and chocolatey. (laughs) Eat this now. But Jessica's is called Everything I Want to Eat, which I assume is a personal statement for you. Yeah, it's a personal statement. I think everyone has their own version of Everything I Want to Eat. There's not a burger or a hot dog in sight in this book, which means that this book might not be the right choice for some people. But for me and for what Squirrel is, it really does identify what I think about the food at the restaurant. But you do have meat on the menu, we should say. I do. Um, You have some delicious sausage, Mm -hmm. for instance. Also, the subtitle is Squirrel, No You, and the New California Cooking. And I think that's an interesting subtitle Mm -hmm. because there's so many cookbooks. Again, when I did this research, the California cookbook, California cooking, California farmer's market cookbook. And I think it's kind of ballsy to say the new California cooking because you're owning it. But what is it? Mm -hmm. I would let you answer that, but I don't want to put you on the spot. So I'll start off by saying, I think it has a lot to do with fermentation. Do you think that that is part of it? I do. I think it is. To me, the icon of California cooking might be Alice Waters. And when you think about what has made her so successful over the years, it's really honoring the ingredients and keeping the ingredients almost whole and pure. And here at Squirrel, it's saying we're honoring the ingredient in a variety of ways, whether it's pure, just eating a beautiful elephant heart plum or Mirabelle plum, or is it preserving that plum, or is it fermenting that plum and turning it into something else, and using those flavors to accent other fruits and vegetables and proteins. And that's kind of, to me, what the new California cooking is. It's taking these things that we honor and highlighting them in various ways. Yeah, as everyone's eating more healthily, and so now it became a question of how do we make the healthy food more delicious? Because we're going to be cutting out meat a lot. We'll still eat meat, but we'll honor meat by eating very little of it. Mm -hmm. So we have to find other ways to make healthy food delicious. I have to say, California and Silver Lake, I really feel like we are kind of ground zero of that, if we're allowed to use that phrase after (laughs) 9-11. And um, have you been to this restaurant, Baru? B-A-R-O-O. but I've meant to go. But you know what I, it is. I do. Have you been there, Jessica? Mm-hmm, I have. So this is a very small restaurant. I think it seats 12. It's in a 
visually unappealing strip mall. Which I think is pretty true to what L.A. offers, these uh, strip mall locations with reasonable rents that people like myself can actually afford to try something out in. Absolutely. And all I can say is, I don't even know what it is that I ate Mm. there, but I liked it, but it was fermented. It's like, here, this is a bowl of fermented things, and here's Mm. a glass of fermented things to go with it. And the flavors are, okay, I'm simplifying somewhat. Jessica's not sure she agrees. But the flavors, they're so intense and kind of salty, and they feel healthy and unusual. Mm. And it's the kind of restaurant that people would make fun of. I know people will make fun of it. And yet... It's really getting national attention. People are noticing it. It's this Mm -hmm. tiny little thing that's doing this weird thing. And that's how the world gets changed. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. And I think just reverting back to, yes, using fermentation, what I enjoy about using fermentation in ingredients and in dishes at the restaurant is that it's taking something that might be unfamiliar, but utilizing it in a familiar format. So whether it's a rice bowl, but using these flavors to really build a bowl that makes you feel comfortable and taste good and that you crave. And the same thing for like even just a basic toast and nut butter and jam, like finding ways to take foods that we know of as our everyday foods, but elevating them to a place of like, wow, I didn't know it could be like that something that you do really well is making dishes that feel both comfortable and familiar in that way, but different and healthy, but also indulgent, you know, and then you have that burnt ricotta toast as well as crispy rice salad. And so you can sort of indulge in that beautiful mound of ricotta cheese with the jam on top. Yes, or the toast might be stuffed with jam. Is that Yeah, for the French toast, yeah. Right. So this experience of kind of bounty and just sweet, delicious mounds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But that all of it sort of goes comfortably together with the other dishes that you serve. And that there doesn't seem to be pressure to conform. The interesting thing about the restaurant, too, is that There are many dishes that are very popular at the restaurant that we started off with that we've evolved to. There's a dish in the book called Green Eggs and Jam that when we opened, it was a tomatillo salsa with a fried egg and kale, and and I was bored. It was being sold like half the time. It was a very popular dish, but to me, it wasn't at the level that I knew we could be at. And so I'm not afraid to say, you know what, these are things that are staples that many restaurants would be sitting on their laurels and just keeping them on the menu because they know it's working. And for me, it was like, no, this isn't working for me or the team to grow as chefs. So let's try and figure out a new way to incorporate the produce that we're getting at the market in a familiar sense, but elevate it. It's a nice feeling. I mean, we're writers, so We experiment with these things in another sense, but it's a nice feeling to know that your aesthetic, you know, it comes from you. These were your ideas about how to take these kind of homey, maybe unglamorous elements and kind of combine them in a new way so that everyone has to have it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's your aesthetic is basically being embraced. That feels good, I imagine. Yeah, it feels feels really good. (laughs) Making new normals. Uh And I guess that's the exciting part is like just to continue making new normals and making them feel accessible. I think that's the interesting thing about Squirrel is it does feel accessible. But you look in the book when you go to actually make the recipe like the sorrel pesto rice bowl, you go, wow, there's a lot of things going on here. It actually takes a lot of steps to get here. It feels a little otolengi in the sense Mm -hmm. of like, okay. So then the book also offers opportunities to say, you know, if you're not going to make preserved lemons, if you don't want to wait, 
go get those. Or whitefish um, salad. Yeah, or just go to the deli, get some beautiful whitefish salad, mm-hmm. go to step four, you know? Yeah. And that's important, too, to feel like you have your own ownership of how you want that dish to be. Mm-hmm. This is still so local. We went to Alimento the other night, which is a, another great restaurant in Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a chopped salad, and it was like, this is so delicious. I'm going to make this. And then I looked it up on the internet and I made it. And it took me like five hours. I was so pissed off because it's like, well, it's chickpeas. So, of course, I have to use fresh chickpeas, you know, so I have to soak them overnight. And then there's a chickpea base on the bottom. Then all of these things chopped up. And then there's the dressing. Breadcrumbs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like I could have made dinner for eight in that time. (laughs) And anyway, but so I assume that one can take a lot of time or not so much time yeah. in these recipes. Yeah, exactly. So, Jessica, can you give us a little bit about your background before Squirrel? I guess it's a wild ride. I went to college in Massachusetts and grad school in D.C. And I moved down to Atlanta after grad school. I had always wanted to cook and even had an internship in D.C., but turned it down because I was working on a thesis and I didn't think I had the time but once on my own, you I know. have to know what your thesis was. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> no, no. It was, uh, well, I went to school at, at Georgetown and uh, I did this program called Communication Culture Technology. And it's actually within the MBA program. So it was kind of this media theory MBA. And it's interesting because everyone who left there ended up either working for Google or Apple to create new kinds of ways in which we communicate digitally or became professors or. Or producers, like digital producers, which I'll get to. But I moved down to Atlanta and ate at a restaurant called Bacchanalia. It's still around. It is Anne Quitrano, who is considered like the Alice Waters of the South, her James Beard award-winning restaurant. And I begged for a job. What did you eat there? So that's the thing. I have a huge sweet tooth. I always baked. It was 2005. So just imagine 2005 and having like a molten chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. Something today where you're like, molten chocolate cake, really? But back then you're like, what is that? <laughs> and that, I had it. And Carla, who's still the pastry chef there and an incredible inspiration to me, ice cream is my desert island food. And back oh. then, Paco Jets, which is an, a type of ice cream maker, was being used at Bacchanalia to make these just perfect ice creams. So it was like this molten chocolate cake alongside of perfect ice creams. And I was like, I don't know who this woman is, but I need to work for her. So it was the right time, the right place. And I wrote Anne an email and she brought me in and she goes, I need a pastry cook. You've never worked in a kitchen in your life, but you're starting tomorrow. Can we ask you what you said in your email? (laughs) Yeah, it was something along the lines of, I will wash your floors. I will do whatever it takes to be the best pastry cook I can be for you. And it's so interesting because I receive emails like that now. And Squirrel's so small, it makes it hard to offer that opportunity. But in the new space, I'll have that ability to do it. But to open up your restaurant to someone who's never cooked professionally, to know that this person is going to make a number of errors on your behalf, it's a real mark of character for her mm-hmm. to offer that kind of opportunity. Because she could have just let people in from culinary school that are looking for their stage. And instead, she did mm-hmm. let me come into her door. So she changed my life. And I worked for her for a couple of years and then moved to New York, at which time I left the food industry because I was making $10 an hour. And I was very concerned with how I was going to make that work. Yeah. I got a job at Fox as a producer. Fox TV? It was for American Idol. 
And uh-huh. so you think you can dance? Uh-huh. Like, and it was digital. So I did a lot of digital work that got me moved out here to L.A. Uh-huh. And the great thing of each of those kinds of careers was that one taught me how to focus on my own list and do work and work as a team. The other, as a producer, taught me how to see a team as a whole and all the components that I needed to make it work. And opening a restaurant meant kind of the marriage of those two skill sets, being able to be a cook on the line and focus on getting it done, but also seeing the bigger picture of how to make the day-to-day work. And how many months do you think it will be before Donald Trump is on so you think you can dance? So November <laughs> is the election. Let's, uh, uh, spring? <laughs> so, Dave, have you Great ever question. had a, uh, Thank you. Have you ever had a meal that changed your life at a restaurant or that, like, just completely was like, what the hell is this? That's a great question. I it's, want that from you, too. It is a really good question. Unfortunately, I think most of the meals that I've had that have shaped the course of my life have been at home. Meals that I remember most were usually made by my grandmother, by my mother, because you really remember those, especially mm-hmm. when you grow up having... You also remember dishes. when you grew up having a parent who can't cook. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, like, is that true? Yeah. 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 So that's yeah. beautiful. You, yeah. <laughs> so my grandmother, she was the one who would take care of me, and she made French fries and sort of lamb kofta, I guess Mm. is what one might call it, every day for me after school. That, Mm. I think. What is your background? It's Georgian. Georgian. So she's, yeah, so she made Georgian food. Georgian Jewish. We have to talk about this later. So I'm going to Israel, Morocco, and Georgia. Oh, no way. Oh, my God. I just got back from Poland for Eastern European influence, and now. That sounds like a really nice trip. Yeah, th- that's, for, about, that's for your new restaurant. over at Squirrel. Okay. <laughs> my meal was, uh, was my first trip to Paris. I was about 22. It was the spring, and I had white asparagus with, you know, maybe just some butter. And I was like, wait a minute, what else has been going on in this world that I do not know about? This is unbelievable. It's unacceptable that I've never eaten this. Yes. You know, and that was just, was, yeah, Paris. Paris. These are the moments yeah. that we live for. are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now it's time for this week's book recommendation. We are back in the studio with Leslie M.M. Bloom, whose book Everybody Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises, we highly recommend. Leslie is back in the studio to tell us about another book, also from the 20s, I believe. Hi, Leslie. Hello. Thanks for having me. What's the book you want to tell us about? When I was researching Everybody Behaves Badly, I had the joy to come across Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Anita Luz, who is a bit more forgotten now than she deserves to be, but she was a really powerful presence in Hollywood back during that time. And so meanwhile, I'm writing about Hemingway, who's earnestly, no pun intended, um, you know, <laughs> trying to revolutionize literature over in Paris with Ezra Pound and Gertrude Stein. And a lot of it was about stripping down language, and it was all a very stylized approach to language. Meanwhile, Anita Luz is over here in the States, and she writes this book, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is so stylist and so hilarious. It's told from the point of view of a young woman named Lorelai, who's the most hilariously, shrewdly stupid but effectively alluring social climber in New York. 
well, two continents, really. Later would be played by Marilyn Monroe in a movie by the same title. And Hemingway, when he read Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in 1925, and it had become a bestseller, he's jealous. He writes to somebody, he won't admit the jealousy, but if you know him, as I know him during this period of time when he's trying to stage his breakthrough, and here's this woman writer who has created this big sensation of a book, he writes to somebody and he said, I've read it and it's like the flu, it's everywhere. <laughs> um, and But it's a hugely influential book and it's a hilarious one. And the humor, people always say that the Hemingway formula is quite hard to break down, but Anita Lou's humor is quite hard to break down too. It's so simple, seemingly simple, but mm. it's... It's really very sophisticated. Yeah, I love when she goes to see Freud. Yeah. Oh, right? <laughs> best, scene, best scene ever. And she tells us that Freud said, he found me very interesting. I was the first person who never had any dreams. <laughs> I mean, Which the is whole, funny you know, on so many different levels, right? I, mean, I know. Yeah. Well, that's case in point. When Hemingway wrote to one of his publishers, he says, look, there's nothing in my books that somebody without a high school education can enjoy, but also there's something in it for critics, and people are reading it on a high-low level. So Anita Luce is doing the same thing, and so she's obviously, like, stepping all over his feet in a way. But Someone I, needs to make a movie about her life. That would be— Anita Luce. Yeah, yeah. So there hasn't been, I don't think. And it would be a hell of a ride. Yeah. I mean, she's as fascinating as the character she creates. And the creation story for that book is interesting, too. Do you know that she's on a train ride with H.L. Mencken, I think is the way it goes? And she thinks Mencken, of course, lots of people thought Mencken was the most interesting writer of his time mm -hmm. at that point. And a feared critic. And yes. And she and is from Baltimore. And from Baltimore. She's trying to, uh, which Lori finds fascinating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, all Baltimoreans are fascinating. It seems to be, yeah. And she is trying to get his attention, but his attention is completely taken up by a blonde mm -hmm. starlet who Anita Luce's view has not a brain in her head. And so she writes this Gentleman for Verblanc as revenge against Mencken and sends it to him. <laughs> I did not know that, but it is a delicious backstory and certainly appropriate. And also mm -hmm. further evidence that Anita Luce is wonderfully shrewd and very naughty. Take yeah. that, Mencken. Thank you, Leslie M.M. Bloom. And everyone should read Gentlemen Prefer Blondes by Anita Luce. And they should read Everyone Behaves Badly. By Leslie M.M. Bloom. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. And now back to our interview with Jessica Koslow. Now, I'm a little bit of a New York snob. I used to live there. Daya used to live there. Medea, we call her Daya. Uh, have you lived in New York? Yes, I moved okay. here from New York. I am from, from Long Beach. Long I'm Beach, from here, right. but I moved from Greenpoint. I basically dug a hole in Greenpoint, and I popped up in Silver Lake in 2008. It's a good parallel. I, I lived in Brooklyn, and I always felt like Silver Lake was the Brooklyn of yeah. L.A. Anyway, the New York Times has done, I'd say, like 14 pieces on you, or not all pieces on you, but you've been mentioned like 14 times in the New York Times. I didn't know that, so thank you. Okay, yeah, I did, I did a search. I'm just wondering, I think the first person to mention you was Melissa Clark, and then Mark Bittman came mm -hmm. and did a piece on you. Did that happen naturally? Did they find you organically, so to speak? Yeah, we don't have a PR person. We do for the book that's from Abrams, and then it's a pretty overwhelming task to do PR for the book, so that's out of my hands. But I don't have a PR person for the restaurant, and so any kind of inquiry comes directly to info at Squirrel LA, and it goes actually directly to me. And it's basically how the restaurant has run itself since day one. So all of those things happen naturally. 
Well, you were first known because of your jams. You were in a very small space, and you said you were squirreled away making jams. Mm-hmm. Why no you? There wasn't room for the you in the, in the space? Girls squirreling away. There's two things. One is that it's the marriage of girl and squirrel. That's what I like to Mm -hmm. tell people. Mm -hmm. The truth is my partner at Squirrel is my designer who does everything. And he looked at when he was designing the jar, he was like, spelling it squirrel? As a designer, this looks terrible. We need to spell it differently. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I hate that. I hate, like, I make fun of that. But he convinced me he did the jar and it looked really beautiful. And that's what stuck. Do you, in fact, have any feelings for the animal squirrel? Not really. Mm-hmm. No. It's more the action. Squirreling things away. I enjoy that action. But the animal itself is, I've seen them many times. Yeah. <laughs> no, really? Did you ever feed them any of your food? No, squirrel? no. Well, you might. No, I'm might. a big dog fan. And my dog that I have, I got from a customer at the restaurant who kept bringing him in. And like, that's a really cute dog. It's like, I found him on the street and he needs a home and he's mine. So good for you. Oh, yeah. That's so so lucky. No, no squirrel, but pups. Do you live in the neighborhood of the restaurant? I do. I live walking distance from Alimento, actually. So did you know that Jessica is going to be opening up a restaurant in West Hollywood? West L.A. Do you feel angry or bad, Medea? That I feel a little betrayed because it's so far. Yeah. I Um, have, uh, next to Squirrel, though, we're opening Squirrel Away. It is happening. The rest of the building is ours. That will take a little time to do, but... You know, it's actually very challenging to find the right type of space in this city and the right kind of partner to do a project with. On the other side of the equation, it allows me to take a leap into an area that I'm isn't necessarily my comfort zone, but to continue to champion the perspective that I hold dear. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty excited about it. No, I'm glad you're excited. Medea and I are just betrayed. We're happy Mm -hmm. for you because we can hold both of those things in our mind at once. (laughs) We can. I was wondering how you felt about when you moved to L.A., whether you thought that L.A. would be a better place to get back into cooking and and why. Mm. Why? Yes, of course. At the time, I was with my ex is now a winemaker in Napa, and we had moved to Los Angeles to move up north. And our plan was to open something up there. He has a plot of land that he's been building out and growing grapes and it's turning into a winery for him. But the city has such strong agriculture, like protection laws, that it almost makes it impossible to do something so ground up like Squirrel. As someone who just took their own money to build this, it seemed impossible there. And the openness of L.A., made it more appealing. The little hole in the walls, the small thousand square foot spaces made it more affordable to actually try something. And also restaurants at the time, this was almost 10 years ago, we have a great bread program now. We really didn't back then in LA. And people were open in the restaurants that own them to taking on people who had experience in the industry elsewhere to kind of elevating their programs. So I found it easy to get a job baking. I found it easy to find a space to open the restaurant. So, yes. And you have helped transform a neighborhood that is gentrifying in, in, let's say, a good way. I hope so. I think so. Yeah. Did you, you've expanded the original squirrel space since you opened it? Yes and no. The cafe itself is 800 square feet. It was like 200 square feet of patio. Um, But next door... Where Lou where used Lou, to have his wine yeah, shop. 
Basically, I had taken that rent, that lease, the market next door, and I had rented out the front portion to him and the back portion we used as our prep and kitchen. We were able to expand Squirrel because we had actual like walk-in refrigerator and a prep kitchen. So that's how we expanded. Not our actual square foot of Squirrel, but actual our square footage of how we could prep. How much pressure do you feel to expand what you've already done? <sighs> I mean, that is a sigh, right? I mean, if you look on Eater, there's something new every day. The hot new thing is opening up. Your friends and colleagues are opening up a ton of different restaurants. It's happening all around me. So, yes, I feel an enormous amount of pressure to evolve. And in a way, after five years of having Squirrel, to have still one Squirrel and a cookbook versus I started with, we opened our doors with Go Get Em, Tiger with G&B, and now they've got three locations turning on five, it shows how much pressure there is to really make a dime. And I think it's more just the economy of scale of the restaurant industry kind of demands that you grow in order to actually be sustainable. And for me, I think I was lucky because finding a space on Virgil Village, I really made the focus point, the people who work there and the community that came in and the food And now I feel like I have the ability to open my next place. I didn't feel that until now. So to me, that was the important thing, the actual feeling of community. And hopefully, and it's always happened for me, the financial kind of thing will fall into place. Well, we've all seen chefs who are successful, who expand and then have very little to do with the restaurants anymore and you go to the restaurant and you're incredibly disappointed because it's lost, you know, it's generations removed from the person who first started it. But I do think in LA there are a lot of people who really know how to keep the restaurant the way it should be. I'm talking about Nancy Silverton, Ludo, Lefebvre, John and Vinny, who have a restaurant also in Silver Lake, Trois Familia, and they're the animal guys. They also have John and Vinny, the Italian restaurant. Anyway, all of these are little empires that, like, for instance, when Nancy Silverton teamed up with Mario Batali to do Moza, she's there all the time. Yeah, you I can mean, still go to mm-hmm. the mozzarella bar and see her working when she's in town. That's the most interesting thing is, like, when the restaurant opened, of course, I was there seven days on the line, working, working, working. And so the people who came in from the beginning will be like, well, I don't really see you there anymore. Well, I'm there all the time, whether I'm on the line or not. But there's other things that chefs do have to do now to make sure that the restaurants keep running like this. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I came from the restaurant. I'm going right back there. Are you? Uh, I was thinking of going for lunch. Maybe we should go over there. Yeah, I was eating soil pesto in my car. (laughs) I still eat it every day. It's like the... Never gets tired. It doesn't get old. It's everything you want to eat. Yeah. Well, (laughs) thanks for the plug. You'd give a nod to your mother in your book. Broadway Oh, okay. Mm-mm. Tell there's, us about There's your a couple of Jessica Coslows in this world. One, Jessica Coslow, who lives in Venice, who's the stepdaughter of the late Gregory Hines. That is what I'm talking about. And that about. is a different Jessica Coslow. Okay. And we get mixed up all the time. And she actually writes sometimes for LA Weekly about food. It is so wild yeah. how we ended up kind of very different industries, but very similar industries at the same time. I'm so disappointed because I was going to ask you about Jelly's Last Jam. Oh, God. 
because I saw that show, which your mother, Pamela, produced, except for she's not your mother. She's so not my now mother. I can't. Sorry. My mother's a dermatologist. and That could be very useful. Well, yeah, too. it's very, very, especially in Southern California. Yeah. Stay out of the sun, Jessica. <laughs> Stay indoors. So what can we expect from your new restaurant that's opening up in West L.A.? Well, it's a grand restaurant, which is a departure from the pequeño nature of Squirrel. It's 8,000 square feet. It is about a 125-seat dinner spot, but it's also a takeaway location. The food is somewhere between Middle Eastern and Eastern European kind of Jewish diaspora food, but with a California sensibility. Are you going to have kishka? We'll have, like Kashka? like nope. So we'll have Kasha. We'll probably make our own bow tie pasta for oh. sure. But if you think of like a range of bagels, but instead it, it's Nigella seed instead of sesame or everything bagel that is za'atar, it's kind of this Russ and Daughters meets a Zahav kind mm. of idea. So it'll be pretty delicious, I'm hopeful and excited about. But it also has a two and a half acre farm in Malibu which was an old cactus farm near the Sarah Retreat. We're growing carob and white mulberries and cactus for their pears and really building a farm that focuses in drought-tolerant agriculture and defining what Southern California can actually grow with the resources it has and kind of being an educational platform for ourselves and farmers to kind of realign what we can actually use here in California. That sounds amazing. And it seems like a really great platform from which to start talking about new California cuisine, right? If Mm. you're thinking about what can be grown in California in this climate. Yeah, I think it's like new Southern California cuisine. Right. And that is also what Squirrel feels really and also what I'm taking to this next restaurant, which is a real Southern California identity. Can we just talk for a minute about Southern California as, as a restaurant atmosphere? Jonathan Gold is an old friend of ours. We love him, of course. He's our national hero. He's the only food critic who's ever won a Pulitzer Prize, kind of indicating how special his work is. But when someone moves here from New York or somewhere else, and you have to explain the restaurant scene to them, because it's harder to figure out and to find the places, just like Los Angeles is harder to navigate than New York for all kinds of reasons, aside from public transportation. How do you describe L.A. as a eating city, or what advice do you give people who are moving here about finding restaurants? Mm, I think New York really succeeds in finer dining, and that doesn't just mean Michelin star restaurants, but it also just means it really understands a designed environment and also technique-driven food. A lot of me thinks that that has to do with the fact that they really have to elevate a dish because they don't have the quality produce that we have at our fingertips. But New York has some great produce as well. So, And that's always the thing that's challenging to me because we talk about how powerful California is. But New York, if you go to Union Square Market on Wednesday or Monday, there are some really special farmers growing peppers and just fruits and vegetables that are East Coast friendly that excite me. And I'm like, oh, God, I wish I could see more of this on the plate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think where Southern California or California succeeds is kind of in the smaller hole in the walls like squirrel. And also what Jonathan Gold really loves, which is like ethnic food. We have such big pockets of Koreatown, Thai Town, SGV. And there are some really unique, flavorful moments 
that show the identity of a culture that is not here, but somehow has found its way here. Mm-hmm. And that is where I'm most excited to eat mm-hmm. a lot of times. Yeah. And you can get the best meals for the least amount of money often. If that's important to you, which, you know, may not be. One of your recipes is a nod to a recipe at Night Market, which is a Thai restaurant. There's a couple of locations, very popular Thai restaurant. And I think it's interesting to think of chefs kind of talking to each other the way poets do or songwriters. How's the community of chefs here? Do you feel it's a good community? Do you feel a part of it? Are you all working too hard? Yeah. (laughs) The interesting thing about New York is that the media is there and there's a great public transportation system that connects everyone together. So in New York, I find that chefs really work together. They know each other. They hang out together. But in L.A., because it's a sprawl, like we're such a large, vast city. When I say media, I mean the magazines. It's not as plentiful here. It's harder for us to get together. But we do know each other. We appreciate and honor each other. When we get out, we go and eat at their restaurants. And yeah, it is important for us to kind of also champion the chefs that are around us that we work with. And you're just talking about writing and songwriters, but chefs, we do this too. We pull for and pull recipes and experiences that we've had, and we take those and channel it into our own recipes. And I think that in any book, it's important to kind of at least give credit. So even the sorrel pesto rice bowl was made after eating a trois gras dish, uh, sorrel and salmon, which is in the book also. And we say... This is a trois dish that then became sorrel pesto. And so for any chef, we do have these experiences from others and we pull it into our food. Jessica Coslow, thrilled to have you here. So Thank you excited. so much. Daya and I are going to go over and have lunch at Squirrel right now. <laughs> I was, yeah, I'll see you there. Okay, Thanks great. for having me. Thanks for it's coming. It's a real pleasure. Today's poem is by E.E. E. Cummings, and it's called I Thank You, God, for Most This Amazing Day, written in 1950. It's impossible not to love E.E. E. Cummings. Take a listen. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping, greenly spirits of trees, and a blue, true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I, who have died, am alive again today. And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and wings and of the gay, great happening, illimitably earth. How should tasting, touching, hearing, seeing, breathing any, lifted from the no of all nothing, human merely being, doubt unimaginable you. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are opened. That was I Thank You, God, for This Most Amazing Day by E.E. Cummings, the guy with the little letters in his name, read to us by Judy Kay from the collection Poetic License produced by Glenn Rovin. Come to the end of another edition of the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank our engineer, Ernesto Orleano, 
Alan Minsky, our producer and questionable moral center. Jim Lane, executive producer. Emerson College, in the heart of Hollywood for the use of its beautiful facilities. Thanks to Jessica Coslow. I'm Laurie Weiner for Tom Lutz. Thank you for listening. 